turn this morning to Deuteronomy chapter 8. Deuteronomy chapter 8. And what we want to do is we want to learn some foundational truths about being a godly steward. Because Calvary Bible Church has so many ministries, it also has a great deal of responsibility. The elders are under great responsibility to be excellent stewards. I mean, it's one thing if, you know, we can't uh, turn on the lights here one Sunday. It's quite another thing when you're supporting somebody in another country. And that person has no means. I mean, they are just relying on you to support them. And so what we're trying to do is we're trying to be good stewards of everything that God gives us through your giving. And when we do look at ministries, we understand that basically all ministries can fall into three general categories. We're constantly being bombarded by people wanting to do ministries or have us buy into a program, both inside and outside the church. And if they don't fall into one of three general categories, then we don't consider them a ministry. They must either promote worship, that is one significant ministry, or they promote evangelism, or they promote equipping and training of the saints. Those three categories are the primary three categories of all the ministries that are happening here. And if uh, something doesn't fall into that category, or it doesn't fall into supporting one of those categories, then we don't consider it a ministry. Now, as you can imagine, in a church, giving is never constant, but many of the expenses are. Week to week and month to month, it varies. We don't know what we're going to get. Now, when it comes to making a budget, then we have to try and plan on what we think the future is going to hold. But the problem is, we aren't prophets. We aren't sons of prophets, and we work for a nonprofit organization. And so we don't know what's happening. We can't tell the future. And so we create this budget, and it's pretty fun. I, I don't really have much of a part in the budget. Um, I don't know what all those numbers mean. But we have this budget. And uh, budgets are nothing more than sanctified guesses. I mean, that's all they are. We don't know what the future holds. There is only one constant in budgeting, and that is God. God is the universal constant. We know from the scriptures that God will provide all of our needs according to his riches in Christ Jesus. That we know for certain. We also know that God will bless us as the church both individually and corporately is faithful to obey his word. We are absolutely certain about God. But that still doesn't tell us how much we're bringing in. So what happens if Calvary Bible Church has a shortfall in giving? I mean, what happens if all of a sudden giving starts trickling down or makes a step down and just kind of stays below what we expect? What do we do? Well, the first thing the elders do is they pray a lot about it. Because we ask God, Lord, please provide, please provide. And if that doesn't change, then we go to the next step. And that next step is, is the elders tell me, Jack, we want you to preach on stewardship. So here I am. There are many manipulative techniques for getting people to give, but we prefer to allow God to move you to give 
as you understand God's will for you. We want God to change you. We don't want to do any arm twisting. We don't want to do any manipulation. We don't want to try and uh, manipulate you or tell you that, you know, if you give us $10, you know, God will give you 100 We aren't going to lie to you. And we're totally fine with whatever God wants. But we know that as God moves through his people, he moves through his word. That's what changes us. And so we want to bring to you some teaching on this whole issue of stewardship and how you are to use the resources God has given you in your life. And we know and we are convinced as we learn from the parable of the rich man and Lazarus that if people will not listen to the word of God, then there just is no hope. So we teach. Then... If the giving still doesn't come up, we will accept that as the Lord's will. And we will make cut in staff and cut in ministries and just hope it isn't yours. Now, we want to make more ministries. We want to have ministries flourish and prosper. That is our desire. But we understand that our ways are not always God's ways. And he wants to do some things. And we have no control over what God is going to do. We're just here to submit to it. Now, what was interesting is, as Jim Rickard pointed out when he was here, there are some 2,300 texts in the Bible on giving and stewardship. That is a lot. That is a lot of passages in the Bible. I didn't realize there was that many. A large portion of God's word is devoted to stewardship, which tells us that God sees it as a very important subject. And to think that basically there hasn't been a series on stewardship from this pulpit in years and years and years um, is not good, at least from what they tell me. So from this series, I want to approach the subject from several different angles. And this is the first thing we want to do. We're going to start doing this this morning. I want to kind of build in you a theology of wealth, maybe a systematic um, understanding of what the Bible as a whole teaches about just wealth and resources in general. Secondly, I want to look at some texts which teach us some improper ways of using our resources, bad stewardship. And then we want to look at some proper ways of stewardship and what the New Testament says and what your responsibility is as a believer, as one who is called by God to be a godly steward. So this morning we come to Deuteronomy 8, and uh, this is going to be our launch pad for this series. Now, If you've read Deuteronomy, you may know that chapter 8 of Deuteronomy is just pretty much the greatest text in the whole book. It is the premium passage of Deuteronomy. It, It addresses just kind of the whole theme and the whole purpose of the whole book. It epitomizes the rest of the whole book of Deuteronomy. Now, let me just give you some background. You remember that Deuteronomy was written after the 40-year wilderness wandering in the desert, and they were camped across from Jericho, across the Jordan River from the Jericho. Now, let me just give you a hyperactive survey here. They're in Egypt. They're oppressed by the Egyptians. God raises up Moses. He delivers them with ten plagues. Remember, they head out. 
And as they head out, Pharaoh pursues them. The pillar of fire comes down. He takes them through the sea. Pharaoh tries to come after. The sea crushes his army and destroys Pharaoh's army. They're on the other side. They're safe and sound. And so God leads them to Mount Sinai. They're at Mount Sinai for one year and two months. And while they're there at Mount Sinai, they begin to learn to trust in God. And God gives them the book of Leviticus... And he gives them the first 10 chapters of Numbers. And he gives them the rest of the book of Exodus, which tells them how to build the tabernacle. So basically, they are given the blueprints for the portable temple, the tabernacle. And they are given the rules on how to operate the tabernacle so they can worship God in a way that God wants to be worshipped. And so that is kind of the general synopsis. So after one year and two months, they get ready to go out and head into the promised land. They're going to enter the promised land from the south, according to God's plan. But according to their plan, the inhabitants are are huge and we're like grasshoppers in their sight and there's no way we can do it. And so they disbelieve the word of the Lord. And so God says, okay, I'm going to have to curse you. And the entire generation who has disbelieved are going to drop dead in the wilderness because they failed to believe my word. So for 40 years, they wander around in the desert. It would be like this. It would be like all the people in Burbank and North Hollywood all getting as many possessions as they could carry, heading out from Palmdale to Mojave and spending 40 years getting there. The distance they had between where they were at Mount Sinai and entering the promised land was about 11 days walk. And God made them wander for 40 years. So they just kind of wandered around out there. Now, really to understand the significance of this text, you have to put yourself into the position of these people. I mean, just think, here we all are. Some of you have babies. Some of you are older. Some of you are barely getting by. Some are sick. And yet all of us now are in the desert between Palmdale and Mojave. There's nothing to eat. There's nothing to drink. And it only takes one day before anybody with any sort of intelligence would begin to think to themselves, what are we going to eat? What are we going to drink? I mean, you have babies that are crying. You have, you know, parents who are old. And now you're, you're out in the desert. There is nothing to eat in the desert, especially when you have over a million and a half people just scurrying around. And so this is the situation that, that actually occurred. Now, when they were in Egypt... Things were very predictable. They had the Nile River, which would flood predictably. It would overflow its banks. It would, it would cause the, all the lowlands to silt in with this very fertile silt. And then it would begin to subside. And then they would plant their crops. And their crops would grow. And they'd wa- they had plenty of water. Plenty of food. And even though they were slaves, they, they really understood the stability of the culture. And that's why the Nile was worshipped. But while they were there, the, 
those 400 years in Egypt, they begin to trust in the Nile, trust maybe in the gods of Egypt, and begin to think that maybe that their provisions were coming from the Nile, from the Egyptian god Baal or whatever. And so... God needed to wean them off of those false thoughts. It's not that God didn't provide for them in Egypt. It's that they didn't realize God was providing for them in Egypt. And so he brought them out into the wilderness, put them into a situation where it was impossible for them to have any way of taking care of themselves. They couldn't work harder and earn their food. They couldn't invest more wisely and earn their food. There was no food. There was no water. They had to trust in God. And that's right where God wanted them. So he sent them out there. And they had two options, didn't they? Option number one. Begin to get angry, bitter, fearful, anxious, and complain. And they did that, didn't they? Option two. Remember the plagues. Remember the pillar of fire. Remember the Red Sea. Remember the one year and two months camped at Sinai where manna fell from heaven every single day and fed them. Remember the water out of the rock. Remember God's faithfulness to always give them everything they needed and to trust in God. Let's look at the chapter. From this chapter, we learn three attitudes of a godly steward. The first attitude we learn that a godly steward has is that he is thankful for everything he has. Look at verse 7 through 10 and notice what it says of Deuteronomy chapter 8. For the Lord your God is bringing you into a good land, a land of brooks, of water, of fountains and springs, flowing in valleys and hills, a land of wheat and barley, of vines and fig trees and pomegranates, a land of olive and honey, a land where you will eat food without scarcity, in which you will not lack anything, a land whose stones are iron and whose hills you can dig copper. And when you have eaten and are satisfied, you shall bless the Lord your God for the good land which he has given you. Here Moses foretells this incredible blessing. They're getting ready to go across the Jordan and God's going to divide the rivers of the Jordan just like he did the Red Sea. They're going to conquer Jericho, go on from there. And he is going to have them replace all of these wicked peoples, you know, the Amorites and the, the Perizzites and the Termites and all those people. And he's going to have them drive them all out of the land. And what's interesting is these, these Israelites who have been living all those years in the wilderness, who will have wandered day after day after day, will have learned in that wandering the lesson. The only reason I survive is because of God. I mean, everybody 20 years old and older died, dropped dead in the wilderness because of disbelief. But let's say you left Palmdale at 19. And you started heading for Mojave and 40 years later at 59. 59, is that right? 49. Let's see. 29, 39, 49. Yeah, 59. Um, 
Math was never a good subject. You're wearing your same pair of sandals. You've got your favorite shirt. Your only shirt. The same one you had been wearing 40 years before that is still there in good shape. It's not faded. It's not worn. Still got the logo right there. God has sustained you. There is no doubt in your mind. God is taking care of you. And everything you have comes from God. And God is the reason why you live. And God is the reason why you eat. And God is the reason why you drink. He is your total sufficiency. Lesson learned. But God says here, be careful. You're going to go into the land. And there's going to be these incredible houses. You didn't build them. And you get to move into them. There's going to be perfectly manicured yards and you didn't have to do all the work. Somebody else did. There's going to be vineyards just full of fruit and all lined up and all trimmed just right with irrigation all in place and you wouldn't have to do it. There'll be cisterns carved out of solid rock. You wouldn't have to do it. I'm just going to bring you into this land I am going to drive out the inhabitants before you and you are going to just have it easy because this is what I promised to Abraham. And so they do. You read about it in the book of Joshua. They move in. But God knows that when people all of a sudden are blessed to a great degree that there is a great danger, isn't there? I mean, you may be thinking, well, you know, it'd be nice to move in a land like that. We live in a land like that. If you were born in this country or you moved here, you didn't have to drive out the parasites and the Amorites. You didn't have to build the road. I mean, you look out there and we have freeways and roads and malls and all kinds of things. You think, yeah, but what about the traffic? Well, at least you have a car to drive in the traffic. Most people around the world don't have a car. They don't even have a freeway. When I was in high school, we moved up to the mountains in the first, first, well, it was about six years that we lived there. We had to drive on a dirt road for seven miles. And after two years living there, they paved just two miles of it. And man, it was so great. Those extra two miles were so wonderful. You know, when you have to drive on washed, boardy, dry, dirt, dust roads every single day, it, it, pavement is a blessing. And it's not until you don't have it that you realize what a blessing it is. It's just so smooth and quiet compared to dirt. And so we are a people of great privilege, just like the Israelites were a pre- people of great privilege. And God has given us this incredible nation A nation which uses 60% of the world's resources. Just America. That's incredible. And we've done a lot of good with it. We've, We've helped other countries to the billions and trillions of dollars. And that's great. And I'm not telling you this because I want to lay some guilt trip on you. I don't. God doesn't want you to feel guilty about it. He gave you this privilege. You get to live here. 
You get to be in America. You get to have the privilege because he has decreed it. And you should love it and give him thanks. Give him thanks. That's all. That's all. Just think, you could be an orphan in a third world country. You could have been born in Bangladesh or or Ethiopia or Afghanistan. You could have been an orphan and your parents could have died when you were young and you could have just been in poverty, living in the streets with no welfare system, scraping by with hardly ever a chance to even hear the gospel. But God has given you the parents he gave you. He formed you in the womb of your mother whom he gave you. And your parents gave birth to you because God decreed it. And by his providence, you are now here. And you are privileged. But never forget. Never forget to give thanks to God. You are privileged. But that privilege should not cause you to be self-content. It should overflow in praise. Because think about it. You aren't here because of your SAT scores. Because you worked hard, because you went to college, because you went... You are here by the decree of God. And He could have put you somewhere else just as easily. It is because of God and everything God has given you that you are a person of privilege. So when you eat and when you are satisfied, make sure you bless the Lord. This is the first and foremost principle of good stewardship, a thankful heart. A thankful heart. I have... I have never seen a very generous person that wasn't thankful. As a matter of fact, the most generous people I know are just overflowing with thanks and gratefulness. But yet I've seen very many stingy and greedy and selfish people who are very stingy about what they do. They aren't happy. They aren't happy. Most of us do not think of ourselves as rich, but we are. Oh, some are richer than others. But in the Bible, the Bible defines rich as this, having more than you need. Now, I'm not talking about, you know, there's some people who think they're in a crisis if they can't make their payment on their BMW and their Lexus and their house and their condo in Monterey or whatever. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about having more than food and clothing which the Bible commands us to be content with, you are rich. And we all are rich. And again, it's nothing to feel guilty about. It's something to praise God about. So praise Him. Be thankful. Be glad. Be glad every day. Are you thankful for being rich? Would you describe yourself as a thankful person? Do you take your health for granted? Do you take your toothbrush for granted? I mean, everybody knows, man, if you have ever gone somewhere and lost your toothbrush or left it at home, toothbrushes are important. And, you know, we think of something like that. We think, oh, well, that's just a silly little piece of plastic with some fibers on the end. But are you thankful for it? Are you thankful for all your gizmos and gadgets and widgets at home? You need to be. Why? Because God gave you those gadgets, those gadgets and thingamabobbers. My friends, being ungrateful is a grievous sin because it is to despise the grace of God. 
It is to despise His grace in your life. Do you remember what we learned in 1 Timothy 4.4? He says, God created everything to be gratefully shared in by those who what? Know and love the truth. Remember that? He doesn't just say God created everything to be gratefully shared in, but gratefully shared in by those who love the truth. No one loved the truth. That is believers. Why? Because believers are the only people who give glory to who? God for what they have. And that's you. So we need to be good stewards by being grateful. Ephesians 5.20 says we are to be giving thanks for all things in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ to God, even the Father. Philippians 4.6 says you are to be praying about everything with thanksgiving. Colossians 3.15 says whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. What does this have to do with stewardship? Everything. If you are not a thankful person... You will never have the joy that God wants to give you as a steward. Do you remember what Paul told the, the Ephesian elders in Acts 20 when you know, he's going by Miletus, he calls for him to come down to Miletus, and, and he's talking to them about his ministry, and he says, he says, I want you to remember my example. For three years, I supported myself. I worked myself. And I taught publicly and from house to house. I did not shrink back from declaring to you the whole counsel of God's word. He says, I, I labored for you. And then he tells them this universal principle, this spiritual constant that he learned from Jesus in verse 35 of Acts 20 when he says, Remember the words of the Lord Jesus that he himself said, it is more blessed to give than what? Receive. You want to be a godly steward? You want to be a joyful steward? Be giving. Be giving and be blessed. Some of you have never learned that lesson. Therefore, you have never received the kind of blessing which God wants to pour out in your life. I remember when I was a young believer, um, you know, I was just in high school and I'd go to church and, and, you know, I never gave. I mean, shoot, that's for grown-ups with big pocketbooks. You know, I was just mowing lawns. And, and I just didn't really, I never just, I never thought about it. The building was big and I guess, I don't know who paid for it. I mean, they had all these ministries and I, I don't know. I, it's a volunteer, isn't it? i just clueless. And it wasn't until someone sat me down and said, let's look at some scriptures. I began to realize, man, I am sinning against the Lord. I am not, I am not being generous. I am not giving to the one thing in my life which is bringing me the most joy. I mean, I loved church. I loved studying the Bible. I loved hearing whoever it was preaching preach so I could grow. And all of that, all of that blessing I was receiving, nothing was going back. And so I had to change my ways. But the first thing you need to be is thankful for the privilege God has given you. Be thankful. Now, the second thing we look at in verse 11 through 14. And mind you, I was talking to my kids about this. I said, this passage is so good that it's like running out to the pool with an eyedropper and trying to decide what kind of water you want to pull out in that thing. There are some great things. But we're just going to take one principle from verses 11 through 14. Look there and follow along as I read. 
Beware that you do not forget the Lord your God by not keeping His commandments and His ordinances and His statutes which I am commanding you today. Otherwise, when you have eaten and are satisfied and have built good houses and lived in them, and when your herds and your flocks multiply and your silver and gold multiply and all you have multiplies, then your heart will become proud and you will forget the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery." Here we are warned against having the blessings given to us by God replace God. We're pretty soon, instead of loving God for His blessings, we begin to love the blessings instead of God. It is the sin of self-sufficiency, a deception, a non-reality. People, we are not Israel. We are not living in the land of Israel. We are not under the covenant of Deuteronomy, the blessings and curses. This text was originally written by Moses to people who are no longer existing in a time that is different, in a culture that is different. But I want you to know, all those people are dead. And we are alive. And the Word of God remains. Sure, it was written to them in their culture and their time, but the word of God remains and God now speaks to you here. And look at what he's telling you. Do not forget him in your affluence. Do not forget him. He is warning you of the dangers of having these great privilege he gives you and then just trusting and hanging on to those privileges instead of him. You know, God would be just if he just kicked you into the mouth of hell. You deserve to go there. And he would be just in sending you there. But instead, he saves you. Instead, he blesses you. He gives you health. He gives you things. And again, don't feel guilty about it. Praise him for it. But whatever you do, do not substitute his blessings for him. You give him the glory and honor that is due his name by being godly stewards. Now, to illustrate this, I want you to turn to Daniel chapter 4. If you go past Psalms and Proverbs, Ecclesiastes and Song of Solomon, you'll get to the major prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, Lamentations is after Jeremiah. And turn to Daniel 4. And this whole chapter is just a great chapter, a familiar story. And I want you to see the main point of this entire chapter. It teaches exactly what Deuteronomy 8 teaches. The same exact thing. It's a theme that appears over and over in the Bible. Now, if you remember, Nebuchadnezzar is the king of Babylon. He is the world ruler. He is the top of the heap when it comes to the powers of that world and that whole section of the globe. No one can defeat him. His army is the biggest. He's the baddest. He's conquered everything. He's super rich, lives in this incredible city. And Nebuchadnezzar has a dream. Remember the dream? He has a dream about this super high tree, this great tree. And in this tree, uh, all the animals, it says, and the creatures and the peoples, they all come and they kind of live off this tree. And then, Rock McKenzie's tree service comes in. 
And man, they hacked down that tree. They grind it up into mulch so that the dew of heaven then just rains down on it. And he doesn't know what it means. And so he asks his magicians and he asks his conjurers and says, Hey, 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 tell me what this means. And of course, they don't know. And so they always use the fell proof. Well, let's ask Daniel. But as this is given at the end of this vision, which terrifies him, the purpose of the vision is stated in verse 17. Look there. After it describes him being changed into this beast and having his mind, whoever this tree is, as compared to a man, changed for seven periods of time or seven years, this is, this is what it says in verse 17. This sentence is decreed by the angelic watchers, and the decision is the command of the holy ones, in order that the living may know. Now, guess who the living are? That's you and me. That we may know that the Most High is ruler over the realms of mankind and bestows it on whom He wishes and sets over it the lowliest of men. This is the lesson to learn by whatever is meant by the vision. Well, of course, Daniel then interprets the vision in 19 through 27. And Daniel has to say, O king... I am so sorry about this. <laughs> You're the tree. You will be hacked down. And they will put a bronze and iron band around the trunk. For seven years, you're going to be like a beast. You're going to wander around and look like an animal and eat grass. And in the vision, the height of the tree represents the pride of Nebuchadnezzar and the chopping down of the tree represents God humbling that man. Now at first it seems that just the vision itself and its interpretation kind of scared him spitless. Look at verse, the end of verse 25. After this is Daniel interpreting the dream, notice what it says after seven periods of time will pass over you until you recognize that the Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind and bestows it on whomever He wishes. Sound familiar? Look at the end of verse 26. Be assured to you, after you recognize that it is heaven that rules, heaven being a synonym for God. Three times so far, the lesson is stated. And so, we probably know what happens. In verses 28 and following, look at verse 29. Twelve months later, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace. And the king reflected and said, Is this not Babylon the great, which I myself have built as a royal residence by the might of my power for the glory of my majesty? And while the world was still in the king's mouth, a voice came from heaven saying, King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is declared sovereignty has been removed from you. Then it goes on to explain why. 
and you will be driven away from mankind and your dwelling place will be with the beast of the field and you will be given grass to eat like cattle and seven periods of time will pass over you until you recognize what? The same thing, that the Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind and bestows it on whomever he wishes. And the text says immediately, he went out of his mind, he went out of the field, you know, they gave him some pasture land, and here's the king of Babylon, out there for seven years, eating grass like an ox. His hair gets all long, and you wake up in the morning, and there he is laying in the grass with the dew on him, just out of his head, totally cut down. But what's neat is, is that he learned the lesson of Deuteronomy 8. He learned the lesson of verse 17, verse 25, verse 26, and verse 32. Look at verse 34. But at the end of that period, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes towards heaven, and my reason returned to me, and I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. But he does according to his will in the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of earth, and no one can ward off his hand or say to him, What have you done? Is this not exactly what we read from Deuteronomy 8? God gave Nebuchadnezzar great blessing, and what did he do with it? He forgot who gave him the blessing. And he began to worship himself because of the blessings that God had given given him. Make sure you don't do that. Beware lest you are satisfied with what the Lord God has given you and you become proud and forget the Lord. This is the second great attitude you must strive for. To avoid if you are going to be a godly servant. Don't let your things get in the way of you and God. Third, the godly steward knows that everything he has is given to him by God. Look at verse 15. Verse 15 of Deuteronomy 8. He led you through the great and terrible wilderness with its fiery serpents and scorpions and thirsty ground where there was no water. He brought water for you out of the rock of flint. In the wilderness, he fed you manna, which your fathers did not know, that he might humble you and that he might test you to do good for you in the land. Otherwise, you may say in your heart, my power and the strength of my hand has made me this wealth. Sound familiar? But you shall remember the Lord your God, for it is He who is giving you the power to make wealth, that He may confirm His covenant which He swore to your fathers as it is to this day. And here we find the third important attitude or principle for every godly steward. They understand that everything they have has been given to them by God. No, it's not you. It's not your hard work. It's not because your SAT scores and you got to go to Pepperdine. It's because God gave it to you. Paul rebuked the Corinthians because they were boasting in 1 Corinthians 4, 7. He says, what did you have that you did not receive? 
And if you received it, then why do you boast as if you did not receive it? In other words, that it was something you did. And I would ask you the same thing. What do you have that you did not receive from God? I'm telling you nothing. Everything you have, either material or immaterial, including your mind, your skills, your gifts, the place you were born, your parents, every situation in your life was given to you by God. And you do not own a single thing. You are merely a steward of what God has given you. That's what the scriptures teach. In a previous life, I used to build custom fly fishing rods. And one of the things... I do is I always write something on the handle. And the last rod I built, I put James 1.17 right on the handle. So every time I would cast, I could see that verse reference right on there painted in white. James 1.17 says, Every good thing, every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. Do you want to be a good steward? Do you want to be a godly steward? I hope you do. Then you have to understand everything you have is from God. And as you leave here today, are you thankful for all you have? Don't feel guilty about your privilege. Just be thankful for all your privilege. Secondly, as you leave here today, be careful and beware lest the blessings of God cause you to be satisfied and proud and you forget the Lord who gave you those blessings. And third, as you leave here today, remember that everything you have is God's. He gave you everything, and you are just a steward of that. Now, in closing, I just want to read one verse. It's in 1 Chronicles, if you can find 1 Chronicles. Chapter 29, the end of the book, the end of David's life, he offers up a prayer. It's a great prayer. I would encourage you to read the whole thing. But in verses 12 and 13 of 1 Chronicles 29, David sums up in two verses everything we just learned from Deuteronomy 8. And if I would have found this passage, I would have just preached on this passage. It's hard to pick, preach on a bigger text. But look at what he says here in verse 12 and 13. He says, Both riches and honors come from you. You rule over all, and in your hand is power and might. And it lies in your hand to make great and to strengthen everyone. Now, therefore, our God, we thank you and praise your glorious name. Do you see what David did there? David thanked God for his blessing and privilege. That's what you and I need to do. David did not forget God in his prosperity. Neither should you or I. David acknowledged that all that he had was given to him by God and we need to do the same because these are foundational attitudes we must have if we're going to be godly stewards. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for today. We thank you for this great text that we just had to rush over so quickly. Father, I pray that all of us would learn the important principle of being good stewards, that we would remember that all we have is from you. That we would not let our things get in between you and and ourselves. And Father, that we would be constantly thankful for all we have. We We thank you for America. We thank you for our privilege. We thank you for our things and gadgets and gadgets. And Father, most of all, we thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ. And Father, if there is someone here who has never given 
their life to Christ who has never repented of their sins and trusted Jesus as their Savior. May you grant them repentance so that they can do that now. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.